Good morning. Well, what in the world does a Gamaliel-trained Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus have to do with a Roman centurion Gentile named Cornelius? Well, these texts bring together two remarkable conversions, uh, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and the conversion of Cornelius' household. Uh, these are the two most important events in the life of the early church. Uh, Saul was, of course, a uh, Gamaliel-trained Jew. He was the guy that aced his SAT exam and wondered why everybody else struggled with it. All right, He's a guy that uh, rose to the top of everything he did, uh, and very early on the church learned that he, in fact, had risen to the top of, the, of those who were out to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And he had gone to uh, the high priest and received uh, letters of arrest to take to Damascus, and this whole scene in uh, the road to Damascus happens uh, as he is out breathing murderous threats against the church. This is such a dramatic scene in the life of the church that someone who was the number one persecutor would become the apostle to the Gentiles, that it's become almost, uh, it's actually a stock phrase in our culture, in, in many cultures in the world, to say someone had a Damascus road experience. Or someone has, quote, seen the light based on this blinding light of Saul of Tarsus. This is actually probably one of the most profound examples of a complete U-turn change of a life that you might ever have encountered. But for a Jewish person reading this or hearing this passage read, what would really would have struck them in the, in the actual encounter of Christ, the risen Christ with Saul of Tarsus, was the way he was dressed. Saul Saul, the doubling of the name. Now, this is something that only happens three times in the Jewish Bible in the Old Testament. It happened, uh, and, and think of the crucial moments this took place. It happened in Genesis 22. Uh, there, uh, when you have Abraham literally with his, his knife poised to plunge the knife into, the, into his son's life. At that point... God intervenes and invades the redemptive history with the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. So at that moment, as the knife is raised, God intervenes and says, Abraham, Abraham. And that becomes the crucial point in, of course, the unfolding of the Jewish nation. It happens a second time uh, there at the burning bush with Moses. Moses is there, and of course, this is the key moment which unfolds the redemptive narrative in Exodus, and there's Moses, and out of the, the burning bush, God says, Moses, Moses. The third time it happens is in 1 Samuel in Shiloh, where it's chapter 3, verse 10, where Samuel is there in the bed that night, and of course, God calls him and says, Samuel, Samuel. And that was the point which became the bridge to the prophetic stream, the bridge between the judges and the prophets. Now, all that happens and is done in part at marker is the doubling of the name. So when the Lord says to Saul, 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 you should hear it kind of like this is a Mount Moriah moment. This is a burning bush moment. This is a Shiloh moment. This is that kind of a remarkable event in the history of God's work. And indeed, that's exactly what it was. 
So Cornelius, of course, that story is also chosen because this is the, the final link in this chain we've been looking at in the last several weeks where we have the, the Samaritans, the Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius' household. This is bringing us to this gradual transition to the gospel being brought full-fledged to Gentiles who had no connection to Israel or Judaism at all. But here we have this God-fearing family. What's remarkable about these two accounts, and the reason I had them read uh, together is because this is the only accounts in the Bible that come to us three times. Both the uh, conversion of Saul and the conversion of Cornelius' household are given to us three times. Now, given the general economy of words in the New Testament, this should be stunning. I'm looking to see stunned faces in my presence. (laughs) Yes, thank you. I see stunned faces. It's remarkable. You have Saul's conversion told in Acts 9, of course. We just read that. Retold in Acts 22 to the crowds. And then retold a third time in Acts 26 before Agrippa and Festus. You have Cornelius' conversion in Acts 10. Retold in Acts 11 uh, in Jerusalem by the apostles. And then retold again by Peter in Acts 15 in somewhat compressed form. Now, I think there is a reason for this. There's a reason why God does this and also interweaves this throughout the book of Acts. And it's that, actually, that I want to address this morning rather than like a line-by-line exposition. I want to just really make two big theological points. The first point from these texts is that God calls us, that means you and me, God calls us to be collaborators with him in the redemption of the world. Now, that is a very important statement, and I hope that you understand how important it is. On the one hand, we all understand that God is sovereign, and this is God's mission, not ours, and he drives it. We have seen that repeatedly in the book of Acts. But on the other hand, God has purposed to include us in his unfolding plan in the world. Now, theologically, when we speak of God's sovereignty and his his work to independently, freely act, we call this monergism. It means God is free to act in the world. He didn't need us to do anything. We cannot do things to save ourselves. This is all the testament to our utter inability to save ourselves. That is the testimony of monergism. But we speak of human free will and human responsibility is the acknowledgement of synergism. That is to say that there is a collaborative side where God wants to include us in his work. And we all know that, uh, you know, you've been in seminary long enough to know that the whole divide in theology between God's sovereignty and human responsibility is one of the great mysteries of the faith. And yet it's here in this text that so much of that, in my mind, is resolved. Now, broadly speaking, uh, throughout the history of the church, Roman Catholicism and in fact, Eastern Orthodoxy as well, are known for being synergistic. And during the Reformation in the 16th century, the Roman Catholics were regularly accused, and still are to this day, but accused of teaching salvation through works in a form of works righteousness to the point that people felt that the work of Christ was maybe obscured or buried under the larger emphasis of what we have to do. And this was a big point of the controversy of the 16th century. The Reformed tradition... uh, is, is very monergistic to the point that sometimes the Reformed tradition is accused of being passive, 
And God does everything, and we don't do anything in the process of our salvation. When I was a professor at uh, the other institution before I came here, Gordon Conwell, <laughs> I spent 11 years there, and uh, they had their version of NSO. Okay, so their new student orientation involved, uh, among many things, but they brought every, all of this into the chapel, and they, part of the event was to listen to a 10-minute video of uh, John Stott addressing the community. Now, John Stott, it's a beautiful video. I heard it many, many times. And John Stott, it was basically an introduction to the evangelical stream to which he was summoning these new students to join in the evangelical, neo-evangelical movement. But there was a line in the, uh, in, the, in the film or the video that always used to kind of give me a little pause. I used to have my heart would always uh, beat. And I, I I'd heard it every year, at least twice, because we had it every semester. My heart still beat, twi- beat, beat twice when I heard it. He says this, The only thing you bring to your salvation is your sin. Now that's probably the best statement of monergism I've ever heard in my life. Now, I realize that to, uh, and by the way, later on in the sermon, I'll tell you what I think John Stott should have said, but who am I to counteract John Stott? That's like a Roman Catholic counteracting the Pope. But I realize that to caricature Roman Catholicism is having too much emphasis on works, and Reformed theology is too much emphasis on God's, uh, you know, uh, uh, sovereignty is really not fair to either. But I also believe that the Wesleyan uh, theology, the whole work of Wesley, was so much a via media. It was so much of bringing together so many strands, which I believe is brought beautifully in these texts. And it is, by the way, the Holy Spirit which makes this happen. The reason why the church has fought, in my opinion, on things like sovereignty and responsibility of humans is because we don't have a proper doctrine of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who bridges the work of Christ to the ministry of the church. And it's actually our weak pneumatology which has caused this problem to fester. God has put these together. And by the way, what God has joined together, let no exegete put asunder. (laughs) Now, the road to Damascus in chapter 9 is clearly opens up as a profound statement of monergism. God acts... Saul can't prepare himself for it. Saul didn't do anything for this. Uh, God is the acting subject. Saul is the the object of this. God confronts Saul unilaterally on the road to Damascus. That itself is very, very clear. But what's interesting is what doesn't happen on the road to Damascus. Here is Jesus, the baptizer of the Holy Spirit, who does not baptize Saul uh, on on the road to Damascus does not fill him with the Spirit. In fact, it never is even brought up. Saul is actually only left blinded on the road to to Damascus, which means that we're we're told through that that Saul, yes, Saul, Saul, could not think his way to the gospel. Here was a Gamaliel-trained Jew, brilliant by every account, steeped in the law, steeped in in the Word of God. He could not think his way to the gospel. He needed a divine intervention. Saul of Tarsus could not do this. So this is where God calls Ananias into the picture. Now this is where the point where the text, in my mind, profoundly turns to synergism. Here is Ananias. 
who's called in the picture. He's told to pray for Paul to receive the Holy Spirit. And amazingly, when Paul recounts the story in the text we read, Ananias is told by Christ, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name for Gentiles and kings, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Okay, later, Paul, when he recounts that, it's the risen Lord who proclaims that in the later recounting. But the point is, this is not a contradiction. It's the same thing. Paul receives Ananias' commission as from the Lord himself. Very, very remarkable, the whole way this whole thing develops in the text. Same way the angel appears to Cornelius. It's a divine interruption, almost like Damascus Road. Think about it. If God had sent an angel, he sends an angel all the way from heaven to Cornelius' bedroom, Cornelius gets a vision from the angel of God. You think if the angel had already made a, such a long trip from heaven to earth, he would just go ahead and share the gospel with him. The angel doesn't do that. The angel was, if I had a, if I'd already planned to have an angel in your room telling you whatever, I'd go ahead and just go and give you the full message, you know? I mean, he had Cornelius' attention. The angel had made a long journey. Why not go ahead and tell Cornelius the gospel? Instead, he says, I'm, I came all over heaven to tell you there's some men coming. Go, go, you know, uh, go get Peter and have him come and tell you something. Somebody else will tell you something. So Peter and Ananias are both brought into the story. God introduces human instrumentality and collaboration into the story. But that is what brings us bring these texts together. And all throughout the book of Acts, and in fact the whole series, we've seen this happen. You have John 20 with human instrumentality, Acts 2 and Acts 4 where God acts independently and the Holy Spirit coming, Acts 8, remember how you have the, the Peter and John being called down to lay hands on them to see the Holy Spirit, and then here in 9 and 10 we have both of these happening back and forth. So here is Ananias comes in, he's on the straight street, you ever go to, uh, to, to Syria, this is the Babsharki Road. It's still there. It's still very straight. It literally is a straight street. And there is Ananias coming into the household. Saul of Tarsus is blinded. It's, it's in every way without the work of God. And he lays hands on him and says, Brother Saul, don't you love that? And this is Ananias who when the Lord called him, he was like, Lord, uh, haven't you heard? Did you not get the memo? We sent out the, you know, the, the group email about Saul of Tarsus. Haven't you, didn't you get that? This guy's out killing us. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you're coming here has sent me to me see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So then Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit and is empowered for his ministry. Now in Acts 10, Peter encountered the Holy Spirit falls simultaneously on them, or just independently on them. They're all speaking in tongues. They're like, oh my goodness, what's happening here? And then they come back along later, and of course, they, pray, they get them baptized in water. It goes to show you, God, is, God does things the way he wants to do them. And throughout this whole process, we're learning the dignity of our participating with him in his work. Now, when we say that we are collaborators with God, we're using the word here co, not in the word co meaning equal, like co-chairs of a committee, but more like 
co-pilot. You know, we're there brought alongside of as he does his main thing. And this to me is, I think, where Wesleyan theology comes so strongly to view. Because in part of the Reformed theology, probably what it does is it, has, it pictures us monergistically and powerfully as condemned sinners fleeing the cross of Christ, fleeing our sins to the cross of Christ. And that is a very good image. Every Christian should see themselves as fleeing their sins and fleeing to the cross of Christ. Without his work, we could not do anything. But the question comes, what happens after you pass through the cross? See, this is where we get to the second half of the gospel. This is where we get where we're called into collaboration. Because once you pass through the cross, we are now are joined with others who have passed through the cross. Here we are in a community of faith, and we're called to be his hands and feet in the world. We're called to actually really participate in his work. And God wants us and that he calls us to be a part of that work. Now, the challenging thing of this is that we normally think of this in terms of us getting to joyfully share when Christ's work and like get up and preach the gospel. We're sharing his voice in the world. We serve the poor. We're sharing his feet in the world. All of that is wonderful. But it also comes with another side to this. Because when we pass at the cross, we also become sharers in his sufferings. We actually collaborate with God in rejection. We collaborate with God in his, in his being used by others. All of these things are part of what it means. In fact, in this text where we have the, the commission from Ananias and the risen Lord, it says, He, will, he is my chosen instrument who will carry my name before Gentiles and kings, for, this is the part we never quote, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So right there in the you will bear my witness for kings, he's also told he'll suffer. And of course, when Paul recounts that for the third time, before he is before kings, and he's also standing there in chains. This is really, really important. I believe that if I had to say, uh, a weakness, and this is not just an Asbury weakness, but I think in general, in terms of preparing people for ministry, we have not done a good job preparing you for rejection and for op- and people who will oppose you because you have aligned yourself with Christ. It's something we have to do a more sober job of. If you go into any Christian bookstore, you will find what they call promise boxes. You ever seen them? They're only $4.99. You can get them on christianbook.com, and they're a little, they, the, uh, they come on little boxes, and they're meant to be there in the morning when you pluck out, you know, like you have your cup of coffee, and this is kind of like, you know, quiet time light, all right? You go in there, and you pull out the card for the day, and every day, and some of these have literally 365 of them, uh, they have a, a promise for the day. So you open up and says, you know, I love you with an everlasting love. That's great. You know, it's just wonderful. <laughs> It's heartwarming. You're ready for the day. Um, ne- next day, I will never leave you or forsake you. Oh, that's great. You know, good to go. But just think, what would happen if some seminary students, yes, I am calling you to do this. Just consider it. Just consider it. I don't think it would be a bestseller, but just think about it. What if you put together a promise box that actually was reflective of the actual promises of God in the Bible? 
Can you imagine? I mean, it would include all those we just mentioned. But imagine, you know, you're now you're on Wednesday. You have your cup of coffee there. You pull it out, you know. I will show you how much you must suffer for my namesake. Ooh. Oh, my goodness. If the world hates you, it hated me first. Oh, That's not very good. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Does the Bible say that? Jesus said that? No. Oh, my goodness. This is getting deep. The point is, we have propagated kind of an easy, light Christianity. And, and we're at a point now where we have to tell the truth. We have to start telling the truth, what the gospel actually is. It is wonderful. It is glorious. He is at your left hand, your right hand. He will not forsake you. But he also causes us to share with him in the cross. Now, the second part of this uh, text is what I call the double conversion of the gospel. And this is the second theme of, of Acts, and I love the way this happens in the text, because what we find in both cases is a double conversion. Here is uh, God doing a great work in Cornelius' household. He wants to bring him the gospel. The angel comes, but the angel does not give him the gospel. Instead, says, go get Peter. Peter's, meanwhile, watching this sheet come up and down. Ooh, 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 three times. Peter's wondering, what is this about? Peter realizes, and, and he himself interprets it, it's not about food. I mean, it's, it is about food, but it's, it's about a lot more than food. This is about people. I have seen I should not call any man or woman impure or unclean. God is receiving himself all who repent in faith. This is huge news. Gentiles don't, and Jews don't have supper together. They don't eat together. There's no way Peter would ever go into a Gentile home like this. God says, go. It's like he told Ananias, go. Ananias, didn't you get the memo? Here's Peter like, Lord, didn't you read the Old Testament? God says, go. So he goes. Peter is there. The Holy Spirit comes down on the Gentiles, amazed. They start speaking in tongues. Peter's like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do with this? This doesn't fit into our, you know, our plans. You see, so what happens is in the process, yes, it is true. The story is the story of Cornelius getting converted. But the real story and the reason it's in Acts is because Peter gets converted. That's the double conversion. Peter is also converted. He's also enlarged. His view of the gospel changes. The story is not just about Saul of Tarsus' conversion. It's all about Ananias, what happens to him in this process. You see, if God does not use collaboration, if God doesn't call us in his work, if this account had simply been the angel coming to Cornelius' household and Cornelius coming to the Lord, what you would have is one saved family. By bringing Peter into it, you get the whole church transformed. We're here today because God included Peter in that event. If you had just been Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, you'd gotten the full package on the road to Damascus, you'd have one saved man. By bringing Ananias into it, now you have a whole community realizing God is doing something that we cannot imagine in this whole event. A whole changed church. That's what all this is about. And this is where Peter, I think, has to be pretty, uh, you know, to appreciate Peter. He, had, he was the only day of Pentecost. He had received the Holy Spirit. He's the one that... Uh, had that remarkable infill in the Spirit in Acts 4 we talked about. Peter was the one they called, hey, Peter, come on down to uh, 
to Samaria. There's a revival going on here. We need you to pray, you know, down with the Holy Spirit for the Samaritans. Later, they're taking Peter's clothing out to lay hands. Can you imagine? They're taking, no one's ever taking my tie out anywhere and laid it on anybody. It wouldn't probably do any good. They were taking Peter's clothing and laying on people, and they'll be healed. So Peter's kind of like, you know, hey, you know, drop the mic. I'm crushing it. There's nothing else to say. I'm all over it. And God picks up the mic and says, actually, there's more to be said. Gordon, Quinn, you're not even fully converted yet. I've got something more to say to you. And God does that. And Peter, God bless him, does that. Ten years ago, I was uh, named the president of Asbury Seminary. And I think the narrative is supposed to be, and I hope that it is, that I was brought in the community to help this community to further its mission, get it long down, down the road as God's called me to do it. And that is important narrative, and I hope before God I'm helping to do that. But the other amazing, beautiful thing about Asbury is not what I have done for Asbury in some small way, but what you've done for me. See, I'm a changed person because of you. All ministries that way. You go to a church thinking you're going to do X, Y, and Z, and you find out they change you. You go, you're in a counseling session, someone comes in to be counseled, they have this or that problem, and you're, and you're there to help them. That's the narrative. But when they, when they walk out, you realize you've been changed. That's the power of ministry. The Holy Spirit does not simply do interior work in our lives. And most of the previous sections of this series have focused on that, which is important. God's work of holiness and sanctification and calling you into ministry. But it's also about God's larger work orchestrating the church, doing things that, don't, that seem inexplicable, things people don't understand. But God is unfolding his plan in the world, and he allows us to be a part of that. The UMC uh, in recent days, and those who aren't part of the Methodist Church will also probably be aware that the domination has been rocked in recent years, and certainly it was a big culmination in the recent uh, general conference where there was a big discussion about whether or not to uh, embrace same-sex marriage and the ordination of people who are lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgender, queer, and so forth. Now, on the one hand, I want to say it is, uh, in my mind, correct for the church to remain faithful to the biblical definition of marriage. This is fundamentally an issue of, it's really two issues. One, the normative authority of Scripture in the life of the church and our, our ethics as well as our doctrine. But also, it's a matter of our connectedness to the global church here and around the world and back through time. It's an it's ecclesiology thing for me as well. Those are important things. And I think General Conference, in many ways, was in fact... One of the narratives I believe is there is it's a turning point of when the Methodist Church went from being a mainline denomination to being a global church. And that's a good transition, though it will be a painful one. But that being said, on the other hand, we would miss the deeper point if we do not see this challenge. And this is not just a UMC challenge. This is a challenge for all of us in this culture as an opportunity to transform us not only in pastoral care for those who struggle with their sexuality or gender, but even more so as it challenges us to go back to the Scriptures and reclaim, reclaim a beautiful, grand vision of the Christian body which has been lost. And I want to say, frankly, if this challenge had not been put before us, we would have continued to neglect these problems. We would have continued to ignore a theology of the body. We would continue to ignore a proper understanding of, of Christian marriage. All these things would have been ignored. 
because we weren't forced to go back to the text again. Many parts of the church are suffering today because of the neglect of things in the past. And so in the end, we ourselves will be and should be stronger because of this. God never brings crises into the life of the church unless it's a plan for us to learn and grow and be better because of it. That's what this is about. I want to quote C.S. Lewis in closing. He once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I want to amend it to say this. It's also his megaphone to rouse a deaf church. God is calling your generation, those gathering here preparing for ministry, to some very great and important theological work and pastoral work. Your generation will be the group that does it and those that follow you. It's important work. God is calling you to collaborate with the triune God in this work and in all the work of ministry that he has called us to. Thanks be to God. Amen.